Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. And we have a special episode today with people spread across the globe. In London, England, Corey Shockey of the IISS. Um, we have David Sanger at the Wilson Center somewhere in Washington, D.C. Rosa Brooks in her kitchen or wherever Rosa Brooks is somewhere in Washington, D.C., um, and we have Joe Serencioni, the president of the Plowshares Fund, in our third sub-basement at the Ministry of SNARK Studios in Alexandria, Virginia. And we have Jeffrey Lewis of the Middlebury Center on the West Coast, where he was recently seen drinking alcoholic beverages <laughs> on the beach with Joe Serencioni. <laughs> with a nuclear he seminar. pictures of it on Twitter all the time. <laughs> Yeah, which which raised the question, Joe, why do nuclear policy experts drink so much? Because we're nuclear policy experts. You study this stuff all day. You talk about this stuff all day. Man, you got to have a bourbon ready when you get home. All right. Well, I think that sounds reasonable. Let me, let me say that we're going to focus in this episode on the nuclear posture review, because even though we've discussed it in the past— it's our sense here in the Ministry of SNARK that this is not an issue that's gotten enough attention, that there are certain things within this nuclear posture review that are game changers. And what I want to do is I want to first go to Joe and then go to Jeffrey and get your take on what it is that's caught your attention about this and what it is you think that the average listener, and our listeners are sort of above average, they're foreign policy nerds, um, but what it is you think that the average listener, say the mm. aunt or uncle of one of our listeners, ought to be aware mm. of that they may not be aware of in this NPR. Let me start with you, Joe. Sure. Uh, there's three things that worry me about this NPR, this nuclear plan that is developed by the Trump administration. The first is that it breaks with decades of Republican and Democratic efforts to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons. Every president since Nixon has tried to do this. N Nixon capped the arsenals and then Ronald Reagan started the big reductions. H.W. Bush made big reductions. This is, this is really a Republican effort. The Republicans have cut nuclear weapons m much more uh, than, than Democrats have until now. Trump stops this process. He does not seek any further reductions. He's, he's, he, he pushes aside all arms control uh, measures. Instead, and here's the second thing that, that worries me, he wants to build all the nuclear weapons that were already in the pipeline. So build a whole new generation of nuclear armed submarines and bombers and missiles at an estimated cost of $1.7 trillion, according to the Congressional Budget Office. And then here's the third thing he wants to add to that. 
They call them supplements to the nuclear triad, like there's something you add to your diet. This is supplements that he wants. And those are, are, are three new weapons, three low-yield weapons that some people think are more usable. They claim that this will enhance U.S. deterrence, strengthen our allies. I think this is all going to scare the bejesus out of them. The worst thing about this this posture review, this review, is that it operationalizes Donald Trump's worst impulses. Let it be an arms race, he said. This gives him an arms race. Why do we have nuclear weapons if we can't use them? This gives him plenty of ways to use them, new missions and, and, and new weapons. I want, my, fire and Fury, you may remember before it was a book, it was a threat to North Korea. Well, this allows Donald Trump to threaten much more credibly the, the first use of, of nuclear weapons. Some of these weapons will take decades to appear, but the doctrine that has already changed, and it's now Trump's nuclear doctrine. Well, Jeffrey, you know, Joe has raised probably the ugliest image that we've had in almost 70 episodes of this show, and that is Donald Trump's worst impulses. Um, but um, again, one of those visuals that I'm sure Corey does not want to really wrap her head around. I object to it. It's true. Yeah, it is objectionable. But but Jeffrey, you know, I, I you know, I certainly understand what what Joe is getting to, and he you know made a reference to something Trump said in the campaign. Um, you know, apparently, you know, off the record in a conversation with a leading foreign policy type about. What's the point of having all these nuclear weapons if we can't use them? Do you share the view that this nuclear posture review actually raises the risk that nuclear weapons will be used? Well, you know, it's hard because there are a lot of different things happening. I mean, whenever we get a nuclear posture review, it tends to become a referendum on whether you can trust the president with sharp objects and like. You know, obviously with Trump, the, the answer is generally no. Um, and so I, I do worry um, about what the document says. But I, I actually the thing that I see when I look at it is really actually a, a, a kind of um, bureaucratic reassertion. Uh, of of prerogative. And, you know, there's a kind of interesting thing where Trump says these terrible things about nuclear weapons, um, but often they're things that normal, respectable people think. It's just that Trump doesn't have the good sense to cloak them in euphemism. Um, so, you know, when I look at this document, um, what I really see is a bureaucracy that has a particular hammer, right, nuclear weapons, and they're looking around the world and they are just seeing a bunch of nails. And I think the place that I tend to disagree with the posture of you most is I don't think that lots of the problems that it identifies are nuclear problems, and I don't think that they're particularly amenable to nuclear solution. And so I'll just – I'll mention two um, that I think kind of give a flavor of that. I mean – one thing that the document did, and this was clearer in the early drafts, is it said, you know, we have this really hard problem, which is what do we do if there's a cyber attack on our, our command and control systems that control nuclear weapons, um, which is like a serious problem. And it raises some really tough uh, uh, questions about how you would respond to something like that. Um, but the posture review, again, right, like they've got the hammer. And so like, well, we'll nuke them, you know, and like I just I don't think that cuts it as analysis. You know, I think this is a really thorny problem. I think nuclear weapons are probably not a, a very credible way to deal with it. Um, 
and and just sort of asserting you're going to do it um, doesn't really get you where you need to be. Similarly, the document is very worried, expresses a lot of concern about you know, whether we could mount a conventional defense of, of the Baltics, uh, which again, I think is a serious problem. Uh, I worry about that all the time. I probably be willing to spend a lot of money to try to figure out how to do that. Um, but then they sort of raised this possibility of like, well, what if the Russians used a, you know, a little nuclear weapon in an otherwise conventional assault? And so it proposes that we develop a low yield option for our, our submarine launch ballistic missiles. So if they nuke us a little, we can nuke them back a little. I, I just, it's not that I think that the people who are coming up with these solutions are kind of going down this Trumpian route and and saying like, oh, nuclear weapons are great. It's just that they are inventing rationales for nuclear weapons and they are looking at thorny problems and trying to find ways nuclear weapons can solve them. And so in that sense, I, I am a little worried because I just, I don't think it's a terribly sophisticated analysis. Um, and then, you know, if, if what you fall back on is nuclear weapons with this particular decision maker, um, that does seem like a recipe for trouble. Okay, I want to come in a second to to David Sanger and get a bit of his take on a number of these points that you've made, including the especially the one about um, the the nuclear cyber equation. But Corey, I know you did uh, an event on the nuclear posture review in London, maybe just a, a few days ago, and I think in your handling of it. There were a couple of things within the nuclear posture review that aren't getting as much play that you actually thought may not have been so bad. Maybe you'd like to yeah. talk a little bit about those. I am more positive about the nuclear posture review than either Jeffrey or Joe are. Um, and, and partly it's that I think the nuclear posture review is for the most part sensible for the most part grounded and that none of us had any right to expect it to be this sensible given what the president himself has said which which joe makes a very good point about the president's recklessness when he's talking about it but i did notice several things about it that i think are positive one is that um i counted 127 references to allies or alliances in the nuclear posture review. DOD is not being subtle. They are emphasizing that, that we succeed in our security policy by playing team sports. Uh, in, the, in the new nuclear forces that they propose, I think Jeffrey made a really important point, which is that it, it's a reflection of our lack of confidence that we can actually win the wars we're worried about fighting and deter we really, really don't want to fight. What I notice over time um, about not just American nuclear posture, but everybody's nuclear posture, is that whenever there's a new challenge you don't know what to do with and you're worried could, could collapse your capacity to protect and advance your interests, that people try and look for ways in which nuclear deterrence could possibly apply, right? So, so as I read the discussion about low-yield weapons in the nuclear posture review, it sounds an awful lot to me like we're worried we don't have an answer. We're worried it could be that low-yield uh, escalation dominance by the Russians could be seen as deterring us, and therefore we need to come up with a, a solution to it. It sounds actually 
quite similar to the way that the Bush administration after 9-11 was groping for ways to understand the terrorism challenge. And David Singer can speak a lot more to this, but cyber is mixed into this in the nuclear posture review as well. The third thing that I was struck by when I read it, I actually disagree with Joe that uh, that this is pushing arms control off of the table. I was surprised at how much there was about arms control in it, and in particular, um, you know, the emphasis on all of the treaties, including the INF treaty, that the Russians are currently in violation of, and the proposal for the new low-yield weapons is explicitly contingent um, as a bargaining chip for the Russians to come back into compliance. That I take as a measure of how important they think arms control actually is and that they're grappling for ways to, to incentivize Russia's return to compliance. The last thing I'd say, uh, the nuclear posture review, it's true it doesn't eliminate weapons. And in fact, it pushes back again the Obama administration's assertion that if we behave in a virtuous way by reducing our stockpiles, others also will. And it points out that in, what was it, 1991, uh, Jeffrey or Joe, please correct me, you guys know it so much better than I, but, but we unilaterally denuclearized the Korean Peninsula by removing mm -hmm. American weapons from it in the hopes that that would create a virtuous incentive for the North Koreans not to proceed with their own programs. And the nuclear posture review points out that didn't work. And it also points out that we removed 90% of NATO's uh, lower yield nuclear weapons and the Russians made no compensatory reductions. So I take it less as, you know, we're overturning the apple cart than we tried setting an example in the hopes that other Others would uh, would take similar corresponding reductions, and they haven't. Hmm. So, David, I'm a little worried because Corey said you could speak at length on a well, that's component always dangerous, of and, <laughs> especially with this crowd around. He's yeah. warming up for the Munich Security Conference. So, have at. Yeah, well, well, have at pick, 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 and choose where you want to respond, but not okay. necessarily at length. But I won't necessarily do all of them. Yeah. So um, I agree with Corey that there is a lot in this um, nuclear posture review that I read as negotiating position to force Putin to come to the table. Because I think we probably all agree that if the status quo lived out here, Putin himself is not going to make a move toward uh, any kind of arms control. He showed no interest in doing anything beyond New START. And that sort of part of what froze Obama, who had hoped that the New START Treaty, which was uh, negotiated in 2010, went into effect the next year, uh, would uh, be the first of a number of agreements and cuts. And that didn't happen. Um, but I think that um, Joe is right, that this has departed not only from previous uh, assumptions that we would be moving more down that scale, but more importantly, it moved away from the Obama declaration that nuclear weapons should not be at the center of American defenses. And if you go to that chart, the now much maligned chart, 
that sort of overemphasize the degree to which uh, the Russians and uh, the Chinese and others have been improving their hardware while we haven't. And I, I think the timing of the way that chart was sort of sorted out is a little bit misleading. But if you go to it, it takes you to an assumption that more and more capable nuclear weapons are the answer. And what strikes me as interesting about that is that General Mattis, testifying when he was still out at Stanford uh, with Corey and, and, and others, uh, but before he took this job, um, made the point uh, to Congress that he wasn't certain that that was the case. In fact, he wasn't even certain at that time that the triad, the mix of submarines, ground-based, and bombers, was all necessary. Now, as soon as he got into office, he came to the conclusion that it was necessary. And that's a switch Obama made as well. Um, what I would have liked to see would have been a grappling uh, with the question, could the United States move down to, say, 800 deployed weapons, even if the Russians don't do a thing? And there were some interesting proposals during the Obama administration about how to do that. And I, my biggest regret is that President Obama didn't sort of get out in front of that debate and, and begin to make that move. A last point has to do with the cyber issues. So the declaratory part of the nuclear posture view, which are the paragraphs that describe the conditions under which the United States might choose to employ nuclear weapons, now has this sort of pregnant paragraph that says we might use nuclear weapons in response to a non-nuclear massive attack on our infrastructure. And that is the, um, the cyber element of it that Jeffrey was referring to before. And uh, I can't get anybody in the Pentagon so far to describe to me the logic under which you would do that and potentially escalate an even disastrous cyber attack into a nuclear exchange. Because the likelihood is that that cyber attack would come from a nuclear-capable country. Russia, China, maybe North Korea. Uh, and so it's sort of as if they were laying out there the most extreme case in a desperate effort to get some deterrence mm -hmm. uh, in the cyber realm, even though the big problem we face in cyber is not the massive attack. It's the short of war attack that, you know, cripples some non-critical but important uh, use of uh, cyber infrastructure. Well, this, you know, that sort of gets into a core question, Rosa. All of this is about how far can you go without triggering absolute cataclysm? It, literally My everything. My favorite subject, David. It, it, well, it's why I'm turning to you. Um, Have a cocktail. I'm turning to the only pro-cataclysm expert that we know. Um, but, 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 but everything is. You know, I mean, back in the early days of 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 the Cold War, um, you know, there was a famous doctrine promulgated about using all means short of war, and then within the context of war, it's you know using all means short of nuclear war. And then now and there's this kind of gray area, you know, using all means short of nuclear war that we'll really regret. Um, and one of the problems with all of this is that I think the number of people who actually understand where these lines are and what these technologies are 
is small and shrinking in Washington. And that gives more and more power to, you know, what's been described as the nuclear priesthood, which, of course, is direct reference to Joe and Jeffrey um, and others, who, who, who have this sort of conversation among themselves. And I'm just wondering, how big a problem do you think that is for policy overall? I, th I think it is a big problem. It's, it's really interesting. I was at a conference uh, at Harvard a few months ago on presidential first use of nuclear weapons. And they got a, a really big turnout, which was great, particularly because it was a Saturday morning and you don't normally get large audiences to come and hear you speak on a subject many people consider boring on a Saturday morning. But uh, as I stood there looking out at that surprisingly large audience, the thing that really struck me was that almost everyone in the audience looked to be over 65, and some of them looked to be over 85, I would say. Uh, you know, it was not... Hey, Rosa, an, an I was in that audience. Yeah, were you in that audience, David? I was kidding. Well, I look like exception. I'm over 85. I mean, really. The one youthful exception. Bing, um, bingo. I, I think Rosa's point has been made eloquently. Continue. But, but uh, you know, and, and I think that for younger people in particular, this issue has really lost its salience. There's, and, and it'd be interesting to hear, hear Joe and Jeffrey talk about this, you know, that, that in the 1980s, uh, uh, the fear of nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union was very live in people's minds. Uh, thinking about nuclear policy, thinking about arms control, et cetera, was a, you know, it was, it was a hot area for young people interested in national security to go into, even if you weren't broadly interested in national security. If you were focused on current events, it was something that you spent a lot of time thinking about and wanting to learn about. And I think that that's changed. I think that, that we have become so habituated to this, frankly, false notion that we completely get it. We, we've, we've, we've sort of cracked the, the, the code when it comes to nukes, and we control them. It's been, we've had 70 years with nuclear weapons, and we haven't killed ourselves or had an apocalypse yet, so we, we got this. No need to worry. Everybody can go home, um, whereas as, as, as I'm constantly pointing out 70 years is nothing. Um, you know, I actually think of this, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that the, the issues that you just raised point more broadly also to a crisis and deterrence theory. I don't think we have the faintest idea what deters anyone, particularly what deters non-state actors, but increasingly what deters state actors at this point. But, but in terms of nuclear weapons in particular, you know, I think we, we, it's, it's very dangerous to have a moment where, People just aren't really paying that much attention. The only issue they're paying attention to is whether Donald Trump is so crazy that he would push his big button just in a moment of rage. Um, but but I, I actually think that the best metaphor for the American public's view of nuclear weapons at this point is it's sort of like, you know, every couple of years there's something in the media where, you know, the guy who's an expert on grizzly bear gets eaten by his grizzly or the alligator expert gets eaten by the alligator. You know, we get so used to day to day uh, living and working right next to this dangerous predator that we forget how dangerous it is, even when we're the experts on it. Joe, one of the things that you may not know that I really enjoy the most about doing this podcast is that as we do it, I have one eye on Twitter and I watch as the various members of the podcast pass their time by tweeting things out. 
Um, Wait a minute. While, while they're doing the podcast? Yeah, it's well, amazing. you know, we have to pass those idle moments. Well, while those other people I are talking? I have alibi for whatever David is about to accuse me of. Sometimes my, my things get kind of totally slow. Clean, by the way. Yeah, no, and I'm not, you know. David, sure why are you watching Twitter? Why are you watching? <laughs> yeah, you're guilty too, yeah. David. I have because one eye on Twitter. So I have one eye on the television. <laughs> but, but in any event, approximately two minutes ago, Joe Serenciani <laughs> tweeted out this, this a, a point about one of the things that makes Trump a little worrisome. And that is, I mean, oh, that's not exactly what you tweeted, but it that that Donald Trump believes in missile defense. And, and, you know, one of the things that makes, you know, you know, issues of nuclear policy difficult. And one of the reasons that people are especially oh, worried yes. at the moment is that people like Trump have no context, although his uncle was a professor at MIT, as he points out regularly. And, <laughs> and they believe in certain things that are not real, like Donald Trump believes in invisible airplanes. Um, and he also believes that missile defense works. And I thought it might be it, it might be interesting to hear you and Jeffrey and, and the others talk a little bit about what makes this era special, that is to say the era with Trump as president, especially worrisome perhaps. And also, should we be adjusting for it? Because there are a lot of moves afoot right now, like, well, maybe the president shouldn't be allowed to launch a nuclear strike. And then I just saw an article foreign policy the other day, which was, you know, essentially said, no, let's not, you know, reset everything for Trump because he'll be gone soon. David, first of all, I want to assure you that I did not actually tweet that out while we're doing the podcast. This was programmed ahead of time. I swear to God. Oh, you're this, a bot. You're telling us that you're actually one of those bots. No, I can line up. And I have certain way, tweets. Way to throw the rest of us under the bus, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so I have I have suspected Joe's bot status for many years, <laughs> and he's denied it to me to my face. But I I, I, I am not enhanced in any way. That's hard to believe, Joe. It's hard to believe. We don't want to talk about that, Joe. And secondly, it is is such an honor to be on this podcast because I've been listening to to your guests, all of you, just deliver week after week uh, gold, silver, and metal levels of of Olympian snark on this program. And I have been nervous about whether I could live up to this. And I don't think I can, but I want to thank you for being so nice to me and allowing me. You are clearing the center field fence, my friend. (laughs) Here from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark. So let me answer David's uh, question. It's true. It's it's this, the the unique um, instability, the the temperament, the the questions about the mental competence of this president have have raised very serious questions about, about, about nuclear weapons. And so you see polls like the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, 60% of the American public do not trust the president of the United States on issues of, of nuclear weapons, 50 percent of them, 50 percent of the American public think that Trump could start a nuclear war without justification. So and, and but what that has done is sort of expose not just his personal instability, but the insanity of the nuclear system that we have, because it's what whoever is president, uh, Trump or, or they have control over an enormous amount of destructive force that is there, there is their sole authority. Once they give the order, no one can stop them short of a full-scale 
mutiny. As long as the order is legal and if they give one of the plans that are in the nuclear football that follows them around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they are but de facto legal because they've all been pre-vetted. You could have a person, one person destroy everything that humanity has created over the millennia in about 30 minutes. Now, why? What possible security reason does that does that system present? And that's why you see members of Congress introducing various kinds of bills to try to reform it. I hope those can be be taken up at some point. And that's why you see the nuclear posture view structured the way it is. The Pentagon contracted out with, with, with various think tanks, including CSIS, to help them understand how to talk about nuclear weapons, how to sell this program. They were concerned that the public's interest in these weapons were declining, as, as Rosa alluded, alluded to. And so and they came back with how to soothing words that you could use for this. So that's why in this nuclear posture review, you see them use the word flexible 27 times, tailored 30 times, options 40 times, and deterrence 190 times. You never hear them talk about fireballs or blast radius or flesh melting effects or genetically radiation-induced genetic mutations that will last generations. Oh, I love it when you say things like that. You see, you you don't talk about what they actually do. You just talk about the magical powers that we have imbued these weapons with. And so that's why I think some people find this reassuring, because it's not as a scary document. It's all done in uh, sotte voce. It's all done, you know, quietly. Options are laid out. Uh, there's even there's language in there that might open up the door for a mobile land-based ICBM. There's, there's all kinds of things that could come out of this posture view. And the fact that you've got at least three more years of Donald Trump in charge of all this scares me to death. Well, you know, I, <laughs> by the way, you're well up to our standards of snark, and <laughs> and 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 Rosa, I, I think, would like to share with you the you know weighty crown of thorns of entropy that she normally carries with her at all times. We, here. we have enough thorns for everyone. Yeah, because she she loves she loves dark perspectives, and maybe Jeffrey, you can join in this dark perspective. Where do you come out on the? Let's come up with some laws to keep Trump from being able to use these weapons, uh, as Ted Lieu and some others of Congress have proposed. Yeah, I, let me start by saying one of the trickiest things in this business is figuring out how much to lie, like. For you? you Are you going to lie to us? For all of us. Because here's the thing is if you go to Hiroshima and you see what happens when a nuclear weapon gets dropped, if you come back and then in one of these nice little conversations correctly and accurately explain what the impact would be, you'll be treated like a lunatic, right? Because you just you'll sound nutty because it's it's terrible. So And and it's impolite. Right. You don't talk about that. It's it's very impolite. So, you know, one of the one of the challenges I think we have, and, and this this gets to your your specific question about 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 Trump is you know, how do you talk about the risks that we've chosen to run? Because, you know, it's I think reasonable people can look at the current system that we have and 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 mount a reasonable defense of it. Um, 
It's just that, you know, it comes with a, a terrible risk. You know, I mean, the thing we're frightened about is that, uh, you know, we don't want a, a system that is so vulnerable that if you would kill the president, then we couldn't launch the nuclear weapons and we would feel like we don't have a sufficient deterrent. Um, but then it's kind of impolite to talk about the prospect that the president might might, you know, do something loony. I one of my favorite suggestions along this lines, which is, you know, totally snarky, but gets at the issue is, you know, somebody suggested having the uh, the the authorization code for the president sewn into the chest of an aide so that the if the president <laughs> was going to kill like 100 million people, the first thing that he or she had to do was take out a butcher knife and physically kill one person. And I'm not you sure know, last week that would have been much of an impediment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if you want to stop if you want to stop the president from using a nuclear code, just make it say ten pages long. <laughs> right. You you have to read nine pages in order to get to the code. <laughs> yeah. So you know good, good. as usual, David Rothkoff, you are exactly right. right. I'm gonna call I'm calling Ted Lou right now. Let's see, yeah. see if we can introduce this bill. <laughs> so, you know, I don't I don't I'm I don't think it makes sense to involve Congress in this decision. But I do think that, you know, we have this system where the president has this ability to legally authorize this and does not need a second vote, something which is impossible to persuade normal people is true. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them that they've seen too many movies where the president needs a second vote. Um, you know, I think as a matter of policy, it would make sense for the president to need a second vote to do something uh, as big as start a nuclear war. Um, but, you know, just kind of stepping back from that. And the reason I started this by saying it's, you know, you, there's a sort of reasonable explanation for how we got to this insane place. Um, you know, it may just be that you don't like nuclear deterrence. You know, it, it may just be that instead of talking about how many votes it's going to take to do this thing, you know, you might look at the situation and conclude that, yes, nuclear deterrence is great today. But it comes at a risk and it's great tomorrow and that risk compounds. And no matter how great you think it is on a day to day basis, um, you know, how long do you want to run this risk? Because if you run it indefinitely, eventually your luck will, will run out. Now, that's David, an interesting I... analysis. Is there, Corey, is it true that Jeffrey was a student of yours? <laughs> I am going to leave Dr. Lewis plausible deniability if he should care to have it. <laughs> she didn't have such a thing. I, I got three high passes on my four PhD exams, and only only one thing kept me from being the uh, the only student uh, in the history of the program to get four high passes. No, <laughs> no, that wasn't that wasn't the deputy director general. Yeah, as we like to refer to her, at the, and as we always will refer to her going forward, as General Shockey. By the way. Wow. Okay. Uh, Corey, what, what did you do? What did you do to damage Jeffrey? <laughs> yes. Yes, you Obviously wounded. nothing. He's a colossal <laughs> success. He is the go-to guy for understanding the most important thorny technical issues about our nuclear age. So so I did no damage to him at all. Uh, and I can attest you did not dent his ego one iota. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, David, can I, it is a great privilege that I can associate myself with any of Jeffrey's good work. 
did, did somebody want to interject something in there? I, I, I was thinking of putting in uh, like an issue here of like observation of fact, but I think Jeffrey being graded by Corey is actually probably more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it strikes me that we've got we've got two separate problems with the presidential authority to launch a nuclear weapon that have sort of rolled into one and that Congress doesn't really know and the people in Congress want to put restrictions on are having a hard time grappling with. One of them is if you're under nuclear attack, uh, you don't have time to hold a lot of meetings, do a lot of consultation, certainly not to have a debate in Congress. So that's the theory under which the president has had this incredible power uh, put in his or her hands uh, and a unilateral power. The problem is that when we did that back in basically the Truman administration, when Truman made the decision uh, himself, um, it didn't sort of envision the question of what would happen if a president wanted to have a unilateral preventive strike, not preemptive, preemptive being we see a nuclear weapon being fueled up and ready to go hit us, or we think we do, and do we strike them? But basically to conduct a preventive nuclear war. And it strikes me that if we still had in place the rules that we're supposed to have in place, that only Congress can declare war, that would cover that incident and that, that problem. We've let that atrophy, uh, because Congress hasn't declared war in the many wars that we have been in, and that's gotten us to this point today. Yeah. Well, yes. No, no. <laughs> I kept thinking you were going to go on there, and 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 that was so succinct. God, um, you know, it's an it's a <laughs> it, it, it's so shocked, Corey. That we, we, there was we were absolutely stupefied. Um, Corey, do you want to respond to that or to what Jeffrey had said? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I actually think they're, they are reasonable points. I, my sense is that they, that as much as we would like to build in greater resilience in the nuclear decision, uh, cycle, the first point that David made is the governing one, which is in planning for the apocalypse, you actually do want the commander in chief to have the ability to command forces and carry out missions. Maybe we just need to build in better safeguards in general against having an insane president. What we need to do is not elect reckless people. That's the solution right. to this problem. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Well, yes, well, but, but now that you have done that, now that this, that system is shown to have its flaws, doesn't, don't, don't you feel that this exposes a basic problem? That we have that, 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 that every once in a while, a crazy person could become elected president of the United States or an intemperate person or a person could become crazy while they're president and they shouldn't have the power to destroy the world. And, and I mean, doesn't fact, that sound reasonable? I think another piece of this actually is uh, increased vulnerability to a variety of other types of attacks, including cyber. Yes. Including, you know, in your wildest, most sinister dreams, which which my friends who specialize in these things tell me are actually not that wild. Uh, you know, bioengineered viruses that are genetically targeted to particular individuals like the president that could degrade cognitive functioning or something like that. You know, that it's, it's not you, you only have to be a little bit more paranoid than I normally am to imagine scenarios in which the decision making capacity 
of the federal government and particularly the president and his inner circle would be precisely what is attacked uh, by others to, to then think that that heightens the vulnerability of a system that requires only one guy to make these decisions yeah. and to make them very quickly. I mean, I think that once we have these weapons, there's no perfect system that safeguards against stupidity. Uh, as we all know, you know, the, we launched the war in Iraq in 2003 uh, after the president consulted quite extensively with his administration and they still managed to do something catastrophically stupid. So large groups of people over extended periods of time can make stupid decisions as well as one or two people in a short period can make a stupid decision. But I certainly think that you can build in some delays. And I actually, I, I, I definitely like that you have to personally slaughter a couple of people first just to show that you're really committed to this. Sounds like a good idea to me. Maybe and just he, a kitten. Maybe. At least a kitten. <laughs> at least a kitten. But even, but maybe even the, that's the person the president could shoot on Fifth Avenue and nobody care. I just you know, <laughs> I, I, was know, I thought this was going to get dark, but the, how do, I didn't think it was going in this direction. Answering your question about why we drink so much. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, but, yeah, but I thought it was going to be dark, like about, you know, killing all of humanity, which is unthinkable. You didn't know there were going to be kittens. Oh, but, yeah, but I didn't know that there would be You don't kittens. want to kill a kitten, for God's sake. Yes, but this goes back to Jeffrey's earlier point that, oh. that we talk about these issues in these very cold and clinical yes. terms. And to, and to Joe's point, you know, nobody talks about flesh melting off bones and so forth because that's yucky and scary and really bad form when you could be talking about, you know, yield rates and so forth. But, you know, that 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 build into the system, the fact that that is what we are talking about here. We are talking about weapons that will kill large numbers of human beings in excruciatingly painful ways. And if you think it's important enough to do that, you have to we should come up with some mechanism that forces you to confront the moral seriousness of that choice. And obviously, needless to say, that could go for many decisions involving conventional uses of, of force as well, where I, I also think that too many of the decision makers historically are completely insulated from the enormous suffering that will be caused by their actions. Mm. An annual visit to Hiroshima is a good thing to do, I would say. Yeah, again, barring that, Making somebody kill a kitten before they do this, maybe no, it's pretty hey, awful. I'm Why not? Well, I, You're going to kill a hundred million people in the nuclear war, yeah. if, but, but but not willing to kill but, a kitten. Yeah. I, you know that what I mean. The great reason, the reason I think that that's such a evocative choice, right, is because I think it forces us to deal a little bit with the fact that we really don't want to do this, and and I think there's yeah. a a large amount of talking ourselves into this. Um, which I don't always find that compelling. Yeah, and, and that's There's another reason that, that this is a you know that that analogy is used is that there is a sense that you're dropping a bomb in some place around the world that isn't is far far away, and that you don't have to confront the reality as you make the decision of what that means to ordinary human beings. And so when people first came up years ago with this thought that the president had to go, you know, pull the codes out of somebody's chest, it was to make them stop and think about this right in front of them and then think that they are doing this 100 million times or 10 million times or, or whatever. Um, it, it's an effort to try to, you know, do the substitute for the trip to, to Hiroshima. Yeah. Can I say that the, the whole discussion about nuclear weapons 
for those who are promoting nuclear weapons, who make money from them, who have careers vested in them, who get, get jobs in their state because of them. It's all done in these generalized, value-laden wor- words that make it seem as if the, the, the security of the United States absolutely depends on these nuclear weapons. And it's so generalized that you can read the entire nuclear posture review and not know how many nuclear weapons we have. It never mentions that. It never mentions that we have over 4,000 hydrogen bombs already. It just talks about how we need these other new, specialized, really cool gizmos to enhance our deterrence, to supplement our deterrence, to protect American security. So it's all the this is an this is an intentional sales job that has been thought out for for years and and now improved. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, you can go to CSIS.org and they have something called the Nuclear Narrative, where they did a report to the Pentagon to show them how to talk about this. And you look at the Nuclear Posture Review and it seems that they followed that advice uh, very carefully. One, one more quick thing to go to Rose's point about the youths, the youths not being interested in this anymore. It's it's actually nobody I, but David Sanger. He was the only youth there. Uh, the only uh, youth. But you look. Why you, am Rosa. I hearing my cousin Vinny in the background? <laughs> That's right. I'll tell <laughs> you about you, the youth. Corey. So look, nice you, 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 it's not happening here. I I agree. There are very few young people coming into the um, sort of the nuclear uh, priesthood, but there's a lot of people coming in uh, in in Europe. The, this whole humanitarian consequences movement, the whole international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, this is a youth-based movement in, in dozens of countries around the world. I was in Oslo last month, and rather in December, and saw them get the Nobel Peace Prize. These are young people, in, teenagers in their 20s, the 30s. If you're in your 30s, you're at the older edge of this, this movement. These guys are impassioned, and this nuclear posture review, this is a gift to them. Because what it tells them is, look, these people are crazy over there. They want more weapons for more missions. There's no end. They are insatiable. We have got to ban the bomb. And so you're seeing the resurgence of, of this movement. It's one of the things that gives me, me hope. It's one of the things that means I only have two drinks a night instead of three or four. Well, certainly your internist is glad for that, <laughs> as, as well as your friends and relatives. You know, to take a page out of... Corey's book here as we come to an end and maybe even to borrow for a moment the tiara of optimism. I think that the note that Joe <laughs> has just landed on, uh, which by the way is appropriate for someone who runs something called the Plowshares Fund and who's had the positions that Joe has had for a long time, reminds us that another consequence of Trump and another consequence of some of these discussions is that it may motivate us to have more sensible discussions, uh, a la the one that David brought up much earlier in the conversation about reducing the size of the force, or even going further um, back to the Obama administration when Barack Obama and Prague uh, in the Czech Republic actually gave a, a, a really important speech in, uh, about eliminating nuclear weapons that, of course, he didn't follow through on. But, but this is an idea that needs to be out there. And uh, perhaps, you know, the, the 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 prospect of of actually having an unhinged president, or the reality of having an unhinged president, may move us forward uh, in ways that can produce a more sensible discussion and save the lives of of countless kittens. Uh, at least <laughs> that's 
that's what we can hope for. Uh, I'm really, really glad that we got the chance to have this discussion. And I want to thank Jeffrey and Joe and David and, of course, Corey and Rosa uh, for carrying us through it. I, I ask, of course, everybody to join us again on the next episode of Deep State Radio, where we will once again explore interesting issues in depth like this. Uh, and uh, uh, please keep those show ideas coming in because we will keep the bugs and T-shirts and other great Deep State swag going out to all of you because we love uh, all you Deep State nerds out there uh, who are listening to this show and growing our audience by leaps and bounds. So thank you very much to all, and we'll be back soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.